take a deep, long, slow breath in and exhale. And again, inhale and exhale. Finally, inhale and exhale. Welcome to the Mindful Music Pedagogy Podcast, where we're dedicated to helping music educators develop a balanced awareness of what we teach as well as who we teach. My name is Jessica Kebby, and if you like a direct, smart, kind, and sometimes humorous approach to music, education, and wellness, this is the place for you. Welcome back, Mindful Music Pedagogy listeners. This is your host, Jessica Kebby, and today I'm excited to bring to you an interview I did last summer with pianist Emily Trapp Jenkins. Emily serves as one of the collaborative pianists at Arkansas State University, where she recently premiered two newly commissioned works for oboe and soprano by Whitney George and Michael Thomas Fumai, who are from the University of Southern Mississippi. She's getting ready to go on tour, performing Schubert's Winterreise cycle with Arkansas State faculty member and baritone Matthew Carey. In addition, Emily has a private piano studio and is the worship leader at First United Methodist Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. To top it off, she also hosts the podcast Gaining Proficiency, where she interviews other musicians. You can see that she's an active and versatile pianist, but what I'm sure you'll realize as you listen is that she's also a very kind, encouraging person. What I love about this interview is Emily's vulnerability in discussing some of her most challenging times, feelings of failure, and her struggles with musical performance anxiety. Our conversation covers her background as a young pianist, her struggle with anxiety, her decision to persevere, and now her current success. I'm hoping that hearing her story will encourage musicians out there who might be struggling with their self-worth or who might be wondering what a successful career as a pianist looks like today. Welcome to part one of my interview with Emily Trapp Jenkins. In this segment, we learn about Emily's early musical experiences, her transition in high school to a high-demand teacher, her undergraduate experience. We conclude this segment with the end of her first year of her master's program. As her story unfolds, we discuss musical performance anxiety and spend some time considering the idea of timing. How do we as performers navigate performing on someone else's timetable for school, juries, competitions, and recitals? Do we write ourselves off as performers if we don't meet these goals? Do we as teachers sometimes write students off if they don't meet certain goals? Today, I am very honored to have as my guest uh, a friend and a pianist and then adjunct collaborative pianist at Arkansas State University, Emily Trapp Jenkins. Hi. Hi. Uh, Emily and I met at University of Missouri, Kansas City while I was working on my doctorate and she was working on her master's. Um, and then even though we met at UMKC, technically, I think we didn't really yes. get to know each other until after we were both finished. I and think you're correct. Working. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then actually Emily has her own podcast called Gaining Proficiency. And, uh, was it last summer or the summer before? It was, it last, was summer? last summer. Okay. That's really funny you say that because <laughs> on my Facebook memories yes. thing, it popped up actually today that I had put up a status that was like, 
I'm thinking about starting a podcast <laughs> and I almost reposted it because it just may almost made me tear up thinking like how far the project yes. has come since then. But anyway, you actually did it. Yeah. Yeah. It's so nuts. Well, her podcast is called gaining proficiency and we actually did an interview last summer for that. And then, and that sparked for me a, a really interesting conversation and, um, a lot of things that maybe didn't make it onto the podcast necessarily, but things that I've been thinking about since then. Um, and, and one of those was regarding <clears throat> music performance anxiety. Yes. Um, and you shared with me a little bit about your journey through yes. that. And that was obviously something that was a struggle for me for many years. Um, and that, that I think took us in, in maybe some different directions, but also some similar times of, Absolutely. <laughs> of, of maybe thinking about quitting music and yes. then, and then keep going with well, that. We, we kept going. And I think that that part to me is really cool because that's taken us both in, in, I don't know, in different directions, but also I feel like very similar directions mentally probably. Um, yes. but it's played out in our lives a little bit differently. But when we were talking about topics for this podcast, one of the things I asked it, you was if you could talk about your experiences, especially this past year, because you, yes. you have since moved from Indeed. Since last And sadly, we yeah. are back in Kansas City, obviously here in person doing this interview, yeah. but um, it's so, we miss Kansas City so much. <laughs> we love where we live now, but we, you know, Kansas City is near and dear to town. our hearts. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, so from my perspective, looking in on your life yeah. from a distance, if to me, knowing where you've been in our conversations last year and then seeing where you are now, it looks to me like you've just had an incredible year and it's been Thank a you. year of, of great success in many areas, professionally, and it seems like personally too. Indeed. Um, yes, so, thank you. That's yeah. so nice. And that that really is incredible that other people can see that. And I, I don't like to really plaster my life on social media yeah. or anything like that, but I do like to be honest with my social media and in those years and times with my performance anxiety and with college and I mean, general life things, I felt like I was just as honest during those like not so great times as I am now that I'm in such a better mental and psychological state than I used to be. And so I, that's really cool for me to hear that that's being observed and not, you know, necessarily like, oh, it just kind of seems that way, or we're not really sure if that's true. Like, hopefully it seems genuine. That really means a lot to me. And that's, a whole separate subject, but in my social media, I really like to just keep it real <laughs> because so many of us on social media don't keep it real. And that's a whole another problem. But anyway, yeah. Well, it seems like that to me, <laughs> um, but knowing you and knowing the person behind it, it, I think that even makes it even more real, but yeah. Thank you. I just, uh, I think, yes. One of the things that I've appreciated about you is that you are open about struggles and, and now seeing that you're open about successes too. I like to celebrate that. So that's kind of what I want to talk about today. I would love to talk about it. Yes. Um, yeah. So welcome. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. And, um, like Jessica said, I, I do have my own podcast, <clears throat> excuse me, but it's so weird being interviewed. <laughs> Usually I'm the person like pitching the questions and stuff. So this will be fun. Well, uh, at the end I will have you, well, I'll put in show notes how our listeners can hear your podcast. Cool. Um, thank you. Uh, but yeah, so one of the things there are kind of three things I'd like to discuss general, general topics, very yeah. general. Um, 
timing, uh, and then failing and succeeding. And we'll get into all of those a little bit more, but in, on the, along the lines of timing, um, I think that when we're in school and we're pursuing a performance-based degree, which is a, a skills-based, um, degree, the pressure to do things according to someone else's timetable can be pretty crushing. I think, um, you know, juries get scheduled before the semester even begins mm-hmm. and then recitals, same thing. If you're doing competitions, those are set years in advance. Um, and of course, then you have lessons and studio classes every week that, and, and it's great to have goals that yes. you're trying to hit. So in that sense, it's vital, but, um, and I like that part of it, but it's really hard to navigate that and not lose perspective because things don't happen on the timetables that you hope that they do Yeah, very often, I feel like. Yeah. Um, so it's really easy to feel like a failure if a piece, uh, you know, or a program doesn't peak at the right time. And I think too, it's easy for teachers to lose perspective and to kind of write some students off. Um, if, if that happens, you know, if they're working towards this goal and maybe life happens or even just it wasn't the right repertoire or something yeah. about it, you know, or maybe it all is, but it's just not clicking. Yeah. There's the, some weird element that's yeah. blocking. Yeah. 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 It could be anything. And I, and, and actually I think it's easy for us to write ourselves off too. Um, yes. and so <laughs> I kind of want to talk about all of that because we are now, I think at the point of life where we are professionally, we are educators now, mm-hmm. but for a long time we were the students. So we have yes. that perspective, but, um, the thing is like time and, and time again in my own life, but also in my students' lives, I've seen, um, people who either wrote themselves off or who are written off by other teachers go on to achieve really amazing things. Um, and it was really on their own timetable. So I think as, as students and also as teachers who are aware of this issue, we're all struggling to just balance the intangible part of artistic development (laughs) with Mm -hmm. something that's super objective in terms of a semester or grades or all, you know, all of that stuff that has to be, um, forced together, but I don't think necessarily really works together. Um, and it's, it is what it is cause it's an imperfect system and we all <laughs> agreed to it when we went to school for that. Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's still hard. So it, I think it's really easy to get discouraged and we're putting in all those hours of, of practice every day. And we know in ourselves something's happening and we know the progress is, is there. Um, and we know we're growing in our technique and our artistry. Um, and also we know that it's not going to manifest itself perfectly every time. And yet, obviously that's the goal. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, totally. It's, it feels to me cliche, but it's really, it's true that the people who kind of keep their head, who persevere, who play the long game are the ones who end up making it. So, uh, when I look at you, I think you're a perfect example of somebody who really tried to fit in the system um, and your life just took a different path. And the thing is, like, you were on the right track. You knew it. You didn't give up on yourself. Um, And and then finally, the right opportunities came along at the right time and you're just flourishing. So I would love it if you could share 
um, with our listeners, some of your story, maybe, I don't know how mm-hmm. far you want to go back my high school or wherever. Yeah. And then talk about your struggles, some with performance anxiety and kind of trace your journey through where you are now. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, th- I, um, I'm going to cry. Um, <laughs> I, that was so, that was so incredible. Thank you. And you're so right on, of course, with your doctrine and all your thoughts, <clears throat> excuse me. I, could not agree more on everything that you just said, because, um, timing is our friend and our foe. And, um, I had someone once tell me that, you know, a deadline is the greatest motivation. Well, I really believed in that for a long, long, long time. And even still in my professional life, I think deadlines are important, right? We have to set deadlines. We have to set goals. We have to set expectations. And before we were recording, we were talking about our studio policies and contracts. And these things are important. These things are what keeps the world turning. This is what keeps people employed or, you know, rules abided by. And that's important. Um, But I really found at a certain point of my adult life that um, deadlines and time constraints can sometimes really hurt you. (laughs) Um, not just professionally, but personally. Right. And like you mentioned, sometimes, you know, certain deadlines are expected to be met and something will get in the way, right? It's inevitable. Something will get in the way, right? Grandma and grandpa will die, right? Or you'll have to go on a vacation or you'll just not have it memorized in time, or you'll have to move a recital date. Or in my case, you'll wake up the week of your DMA audition with a, with a very scary, serious injury that you could have never foreseen. And all these obstacles, it could be very small. It could be just like you are having a horrible day and can't make that deadline or however it may be. But, um, I, I now hear that sentence every now and again, where people say, you know, a deadline is the greatest motivation. And I really don't know how I feel about that statement anymore. I really don't just because, yeah, I, I see it in my personal and professional life that I, I set deadlines for myself because otherwise sometimes things won't get done. But then, you know, if I'm really forcing a deadline on other people, such as my students, or maybe a set of repertoire that I'm trying to learn, and I am really aggressive with a deadline that might not be very logical, that sometimes can bite me in the but a little bit for lack of a better term. But, um, so yeah, I'm really, anyway, I just wanted to say, I'm really glad that you mentioned all of that because it really is true. Um, and it's, it's absolutely uh, relevant for me personally. Um, I grew up playing piano. I, I, th- I started about eight, I think is when I started and I was, I was pretty normal kid, right? It's like, you see the little kids come in and, um, I worked through the John Thompson series and I did the dozen a day and I did, yes, I loved it. And I had a phenomenal teacher start me out. I, I, um, studied with her from when I was eight until I was 14. Oh, wow. So huge consistency. Yes. Like very, very personal, deep, right. Like family member. She was kind of like aunt or grandma in my life. Right. She would take time out of lessons to ask me how I'm doing, how I'm, I'm feeling. Right. It wasn't, um, piano starting out was never this like super intense scales, arpeggios, you know, it was very skill-based, but it was so much more personal than that. And so I fell very quickly 
into love with this whole concept of music. And I had been singing musical theater and, you know, church stuff, and I had been singing and dancing and acting. And so piano was sort of the encapsulating moment for, for that. And I just did well with it. I don't know. Like I was a smart kid. I still am. And I just absorbed it really quick. Um, I didn't really ever have any issues. Um, about eighth grade and into freshman year of high school, we sort of started to realize that at all the recitals, I was kind of like really above the rest of the studio. And that's not a problem, but I kind of started to ask my teacher for harder music and harder repertoire. And she wasn't quite comfortable teaching me some of this like more uh, advanced literature. And it was actually her idea to sit me and my family down and say, I think it might be time for you to go to a, a more difficult teacher. And that was absolutely heart shattering for us because we didn't know if that was like a personal thing, like she was sick of us or anything, but that was probably the best thing ever that could have happened to us and her at that point, because she was honest. Yeah. She said, I have loved teaching you, but I think you're now getting to a point where you need to advance. And if this is something you want to do, I have a couple people in mind, right? So she was able to recommend and that was a really awkward uh, thing for my family and I, because I guess we just thought, oh, we'll just stay with the same teacher forever because she was so awesome, right? She yeah. came to birthday parties. She came Aww. to like all my swim meets. Like she was absolutely like aunt or grandma. Wow. Like I said, she came to everything and she was so great. She was a very good, good pianist. Um, but you know, again, there came a time where let's, let's move on. So, um, she recommended that I go to another teacher in town. Well, it was a complete 180 flip with this lady. Mm. She was not personal. She did not give compliments. She made us sign a contract. She gave us a month trial, uh, before she even accepted me into her studio. She had me come prepared with three or four pieces of music, at my, uh, interview is what she called it. My first lesson was an interview and, uh, she didn't even let me play like six or eight bars. And she's like, Oh, I, I've seen what I need to see. Like she was very, like very cold, very aggressive. Now this woman had total right to do that. Cause she mm-hmm. got all of her degrees at Oberlin. She is ancient. She has four pianos in her room, in her house. <laughs> um, they are like, this is her life. Right. So she's completely allowed to be like that. Sure. But I, again, I had come from this beautiful nurturing, you know, environment of everything's great and rainbows. And then I had this really intense, like very, very serious teacher. So by some grace, she decided that I was good enough to come into her studio and she immediately started me in competitions. And again, I'd never done anything like that. Um, and my first year is probably my, that was my freshman year of high school. That was my first ever instance of feeling really scared with music, Mm -hmm. really horrified, really like, I would walk away from lessons probably as frequent as every other week, bawling my eyes out in the car to mom and dad, um, because she would just like really harp on me. Like your scales are not fast enough. They're not clean enough. Your repertoire is not memorized, right? She would be totally honest and really just rip into me. And it wasn't, she had no cares about my other extracurricular activities. I was way too busy that year. (laughs) I was doing too much, but, um, she had no care because piano was her life and she expected it to be my life. And she said, I'm going to put you in competitions and there's going to be judges and there's going to be people looking at you. And if you, this isn't memorized or if this isn't at this tempo, you're going to embarrass me. You're going to be an embarrassment, right? So all this kind of vocabulary started to enter my mind. 
And it was so different from my past experience. And I remember crying and just feeling so anxious about lessons and so anxious about performing. And for whatever reason, I did fine that year. Like I did these competitions and I did these evaluations and I did just fine. And we got to the other side. I remember it was like June, you know, after the school year had winded down. And I remember her saying, I'm really surprised you made it. Oh, wow. I'm really shocked that you did it. And I was like, yeah, me too. I don't know. Like it all, now looking back, it's just this huge blur. That was years and years ago. But I remember how I felt. I remember feeling awful. And I remember not enjoying it. Um, and she never really gave me that chance to like just let loose and like make the music because it was all technical. It was mm-hmm. all about the stuff on the page. And do not get me wrong. Now that I am on this side... Yes, you have to do that technique. You have to do those notes. You have to give those dynamics. You have to do all those things. Um, And I don't, I really don't fault her because after that first year, things really started to exponentially get better with her. And her and I still talk to this day. She is probably, I mean, she's one of my favorite people on the face of this earth, but I have told her before, I said, Diane, that first year you put me through absolute hell. You really made me feel crappy about my playing. And she goes, well, you needed it. You needed it. You needed someone to tell you, hey, you're not the top dog anymore. (laughs) And she's absolutely right. She's absolutely right. All those years in middle school and elementary school, I was just that quick kid, right, who got everything. And she saw that and she was afraid. She said, I didn't want you to become... Uh, someone who took it for granted or just like thought that they could skim by. And she said, I really wanted you to work. And I knew that you had the work ethic. So that's why I did that. So that was another weird turn because she then just justified everything that she had done. And it made me like, it made me understand. I said, that's why, right. That's why you really put me through that crazy year of my life where I did like all these weird things that I've never done before. And then the years after that, you know, sophomore, junior and senior year, it felt much, much more justified. She put me through a lot of hard stuff still, but at the end of each of those things, whether it's a competition or a, you know, theory test or recital or whatever it would be, she would come to me and she'd say, now look at you now, like, look at all this progress you've made. And, you know, again, slowly, I kind of started building that trust and building that confidence and building that, um, interest back. So by the time I was a senior, um, I said, you know, I really think I might be able to go to college and play piano in college. And she goes, well, yeah, like if that's your goal, like we're going to have to keep pushing. And she was serious. I mean, I auditioned with like pretty serious rep for an undergraduate. Um, I remember doing Beethoven, Mozart sonatas, like concerto, like it was a very serious, sophisticated repertoire. Um, and I felt that I could play it right. Like she had pushed me so hard. I was like, okay, I can do this. You know, I'm, I'm I'm by the skin of my teeth. I felt like I was just like keeping my head above water, but I could do it. Um, I won't go into the story of how I found my undergraduate, but I went to Goshen college. It's, I grew up in Oregon and, uh, Goshen college is in Northern Indiana. So, um, that's a whole separate story. My, the short version of that is that my 
choir director, got his music education degree there. Um, and it's a pretty small liberal arts Christian school, um, but they offered me quite a bit of money and scholarship. So yeah, that's my ticket. <laughs> um, that's mostly, most of the time people's ticket. And I'm really glad that that was my ticket because it was a great experience. Um, that was my first time in my undergrad program where I had a male teacher. I had all female teachers up till that point. Um, I personally and professionally do not believe that there is any difference between male or female teachers, but that was a new thing for me at a young age. I had never worked with a male teacher. Um, he was phenomenal. He was great. There was never really any huge issues there, but, um, that I remember feeling a little nervous, uh, starting because I thought, oh, this is, I just wonder how that dynamic is going to be. Right. I was young and he had been there for a long, long time. He was tenured and he had been pumping out these amazing kids and all that stuff. So anyway, um, my undergrad was great. I really, honestly, there was very few times where my anxiety came back, um, to the intensity that it was that year in high school. Um, I do remember, uh, getting ready for my senior recital. That was a little bit stressful. There was a couple times where I'd go into lessons crying and, you know, I would be just, just nervous or disappointed that I hadn't memorized the thing that I was supposed to, or that I wasn't ready for the thing that I was supposed to play at. Um, but it was never like a relational thing. It was always that pressure that I put on myself to say, Oh crap. Like that Chopin blood's just not memorized. So I really shouldn't be playing it at studio or, you know, normal things like that. And that's, that's a really, I would, if there's a triangle with anxiety, um, the bottom part, the bottom slab is obviously the biggest. That's, that's the level of anxiety I'm talking about. It was, it's the level that almost all of us feel in a degree program. It's usually, usually temporary, right? Maybe a week to week thing. Maybe it's just that pressure we put on ourselves, right? That's probably the most common form of performance anxiety that people feel is they keep themselves to this high standard and they fall short of that. And whether or not that, you know, pressure that they put on themselves is accurate or not, we all feel that. And that doesn't make it okay, but it does. I mean, that's, that is the most common. We've all been there. Um, my dad is an engineer and he feels this pressure all the time at work. <laughs> he and I have talked a lot about anxiety in general. And he, you know, when he's got a big job coming up or if he has a big presentation, he puts pressure on himself and he's got a deadline. So again, that's why I think of it as the bottom of the triangle. Cause so many professionals feel that it's just like an undercurrent is what you're saying. It's just yeah. present. Yeah. It's just there. And you know, we want to do well. Like we, at that point in my life, like I had been playing the piano for a few years and I had been playing some fun, serious rep and I really wanted to do well. And so I would say in my undergraduate experience, that was more of what I felt was my more like my personal pressure. Um, my teacher certainly pushed me. He was not easy on me. He was also very honest if things weren't good, but he never really was the one to like set me into those feelings. It was more, you know, I'm going to take your feedback. What you're saying is true. And then I'm going to sort of morph it into this bad, <laughs> you know, worse pressure. Maybe I, I don't know if that makes sense, but mm -hmm. it was, I never, really felt that it was relational, um, with him. He was phenomenal. He got me, uh, interested in thinking about graduate school after that. And I ended up going on and getting accepted to go to university of Missouri, Kansas city. And that was a huge, huge, huge deal for me because I'd come from this 
um, like nobody knows undergrad pretty much, um, in the middle of Indiana. And I was from Oregon and I had been playing piano, you know, sort of okay. But, um, the thought of going to a conservatory really freaked me the F out because (laughs) I was like, oh, you know, this is because every chapter seemed like it was getting more serious, more Mm -hmm. serious, more serious. And this in my mind was like the capstone, right? I cannot believe I've made it this far. This is a huge, huge responsibility and what an honor. And the main reason that I was wanting to consider Kansas City is because Robert Weirich, during my time at Goshen College, had come and given a um, a workshop presentation and recital at Goshen College. Oh. So random. He had come all the way to Indiana and he performed the entire Goldberg Variations from memory. And I will never forget it. It was the most incredible and sensitive and rewarding musical experience that I've ever had. It was so tremendous. And what's funny is he still remembers this, actually. Um, (laughs) The power went out. We had a tornado rip through Goshen about two-thirds of the way through his program. And all the power went out. And so we had to evacuate into the little (laughs) shelter area. Um, And it was so hilarious because before before we had to evacuate, all the power went down. And so we're sitting in the concert hall and it's dark. And for about a minute or so, the technicians or the stage managers had to actually physically go on stage and stop him because he had been playing with his eyes closed and he didn't even realize that the lights were out. So he was just, we're sitting there maybe a minute and he's still playing. And it was, you know, just like goosebump, beautiful (laughs) moment. Anyway, so I had remembered that and I was like, oh yeah, like where does that guy teach? Right? Mm -hmm. Like I remember that experience. So where does he teach? And, you know, of course that's how the stones fell, but, um, I was very lucky to get a spot in his studio and uh, very, very lucky to have even gone to UMKC. I look back at that time and I truly do not take it for granted. I went through many, many ups and downs, but um, that was a huge deal. I mean, it is a huge deal to get into grad school. It is a very big deal to earn your spot, to work your way up to that point. And even now, like after my injury and after all the ups and downs, I will never not believe that. (laughs) Um, Even through all the stuff that happened during those two years, I will always say I'm so grateful that I went because I met my husband there. (laughs) And that's a huge plus, of course. But um, I met friends and colleagues like it's going to make me cry. Like these people got me through some of the worst times of my whole life. And if I had not come, A, I wouldn't have experienced those awful things, <laughs> which is... <laughs> so maybe. No, yeah, <laughs> sort of. But honestly, like it's the people and the experiences yes. that I got that pulled me through. And I will take that over my injury any day. So um, that's really long. I'm so sorry. That You're was fine. a huge long story leading up to that. <laughs> but it's all important because as you can see, up until that point, I had had a little bit of dipping into that anxiety pool. So these feelings of anxiety weren't totally brand new by Mm -hmm. the time I started my master's. Do you feel Um, like they hit you harder than any other point in your life uh, when you did, when you were here for your master's? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I remember my first lesson um, in my master's program, it was it was interesting because I think I had not understood that I should just like have my music ready on the first day of school. Mm, (laughs) Um, and that was, you know, I don't necessarily blame a particular person, myself included for that, but 
most people, you know, use the summer to practice and get ready. And I just like hadn't. <laughs> uh, so I showed up to my first lesson and I could sort of play through things, but they weren't, you know, they were great. And I admit that, but that was sort of that, that sort of set the tone, um, mm. for my lessons where I constantly felt like I just really wasn't sure what was expected of me. And because I was in a studio and in a program where a lot of people just kind of knew what the performance level was, yeah. it's way up here. And I felt really dumb because I didn't quite understand that off the get-go. Maybe because nobody told me, maybe because I just didn't know that that's what this level of music making is like. Um, it was a whole combination of things, but I kind of like from my week to week lessons just felt like, is someone not telling me something like, am I falling behind because I'm not meeting the expectation? Why am I so much more underprepared than my colleagues? You know, and it was this really weird personal thing for me because I wanted to work hard and I practiced, but I don't think I was making the progress at the rate of my colleagues and of my studio mates. And therefore I fell on the totem pole pretty quick. Do you feel like that was a personal, um, uh, a, a person, a thing you personally put on yourself or do you feel like that came from your teacher? Uh, yeah. Like what you're saying that that feeling of, wait a second, you know, I thought I was on the right track, but I think I'm sensing I'm not. Or do you feel like that just came from the environment and and you're, you were picking up on that? That's a good, that's a good point to distinguish between. Um, for me, what had happened from week to week lessons was I felt like I was going and I was practicing and I was like making huge leaps and bounds in specific parts of my music. Mm. And that was good and rewarding. And I would come to my lessons and say, look what I did with this section, right? Like look how much better this section is. And that's all fine and good. But I think what was expected of me was a bigger product. Like, Mm -hmm. can we get the whole movement that way? Or can we get the whole, you know, the whole sonata that way or something? So I was doing the right kind of work I felt, but maybe not in the larger scale that was being expected. And I also wasn't used to learning and making progress that quickly because I don't think I'm a slow learner by any means, but I wasn't used to that type of compartmentalizing where like, let's apply that now to the entire movement rather than like just that development or whatever. Let's put that over the entire scope. So I think what was happening was I, my tunnel vision was slightly narrower than my teachers and then the the departments. And again, that's sort of that weird, am I off here? Like what I'm, and literally if you think about those, the blinders, um, metaphor, I really wasn't seeing the, the whole picture, right? I wasn't seeing how I was not giving the product and I wasn't not giving the results as the people around me because too small in my focus. I was too small in my, uh, the results that I wanted. Do you feel like you recognized you could articulate that at the time or was that something that came to you more after? Yeah. Um, yes and no. I mean, that's, that's a tough one for me. I, on occasion would ask the question like, what specifically do I need to be doing? Or, you know, what, what can I do differently? And like, there were occasions where I felt like that, but, um, on occasion I would ask those questions and it would seem almost as if 
it's weird that you don't know, or mm-hmm. it's weird that you're not picking up on this. Like, why are we having this? Like that was the response you got from your teachers and peers. Yeah. 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 Okay. I would go, you know, in studio classes, mm-hmm. for example, I would ask, you know, the question of, well, how can I make the, you know, this part's really tough. Like, how can I make this part better? And a lot of people would say, well, you're doing that in this other section, just do the same thing. Like it was just a no brainer. Like, mm. but yeah, just hello. Like, why wouldn't you just, you know, yeah. that's sort of, at least from my perspective. Right, now I right. really, yeah. uh, looking back, I really don't know if that's how it was communicated to me, Sure, but that's the way that I absorbed it. And mm-hmm. that's the only thing that I can vouch for is sure. how I felt at yeah. the time. Um, and so again, like I said, like it, it really in the fall and then even bleeding into the spring semester of my first year, my master's, I was playing good rep. I was practicing and I was having fun with my friends and like colleagues. And it was exciting being at the conservatory, but every single week it, it just ate away at me that is there something that I'm not doing? I, I can't quite describe it other than that because it's just so weird it's yeah. a, like the weirdest feeling. And every, every time I would go and, you know, stand outside the studio door for my lesson, it was right then in those like, you know, five or 10 minutes when I'm waiting for my lesson, it would all immediately come to me and it would just be this laundry list. Well, you didn't practice this. You didn't practice that. You didn't get that better this week. You didn't get that. And it was this weird, it, like, and I could visually see it. And it was like this list. And it was almost as if I was predicting the laundry list of what my teacher was about to tell me. And then of course you get in that black hole and that horrible, horrible Mm -hmm. self-esteem moment of why am I even going to have a lesson if I haven't done this laundry list or why, why am I even here? And I, I, the spring semester week by week, I got worse and worse and worse. And it was, it just really, really spiraled. And of course that affected my practicing. So what happened then was I felt like I wasn't doing good enough or I wasn't creating the product that I wanted. And I would have these anxiety attacks right before my lessons. So going into my lessons, I would be crying. Literally, he would open the door, I'd be crying. (laughs) I'm sort of, I'm smiling because... Uh, only because when you said you was, you know, that moment you stood in front of the door, <laughs> I think when you say that every, every music student puts themselves there and yes. thinks, oh my gosh, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. That feeling of going into the lesson of like, did I, am I, is it, mm-hmm. you know, and, and all the, gosh, all the questions or I hope I can play it, you know, the way that I know I can play yes, it. Yes, exactly. But, so I have a question. Um, Along those lines, like you're saying, it kind of spiraled. Do you think, do you feel like you, I'm trying to think of the right word, like stigmatized yourself or that you felt stigmatized by, you know, peers or teachers and by this thing that you're like, wait, I think we have a different set of expectations here. And, uh, so do you think that was external or internal, um, it's a good question. And do you, like, how did that factor in? I know from my experience, like, I I have um, an amazing ability to tear myself apart, right? And <laughs> Welcome so, to the club. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I think everybody sees me that way. And yeah. so I go into the, these, you know, things like lessons or performances thinking everybody's expecting what this I... This level. Or... Well, or, you know, thinking... I don't know, uh, expecting a total failure mm-hmm. uh, because 
obviously we're all capable of failing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Remember, we're also all capable of like, succeeding, but, yes. but I think I, I see myself through that lens. So I think other people see myself through that lens. So then when I get feedback from other people, it comes through that lens. I don't know if that yes. makes sense. So, yeah, it does. but then I find out, you know, later on talking to these people, they're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, can't I believe see you, think you totally differently. Yes. And so then I, then I get really confused. Yeah. <laughs> but so I'm just wondering, like, I'm thinking, you know, as you're talking, I'm putting myself in your spot because yeah. I've been there too, so many times. And so I think many people have how, like, I, I know that it would have come from myself mm-hmm. and I know that even actually I do know because sometimes I would talk to my teachers and they would just look at me like I'm crazy. Like, mm-hmm. what are you talking about? That's not <laughs> at all how I see this, you know? Yeah. And so then I would realize like, well, crap, I just did this to myself mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and I could have picked another path mm-hmm. and had a really different perspective. Yeah. And, and so anyway, I don't know if that, that's it does very rambly, but no, no, you know no, what I'm, I, I'm with you. Do you feel, and then, you know what? Most of the time we can't even know that in the moment, but do you feel like yeah. that came from yourself or in a minute, maybe it came from outside. Like you really didn't know yeah. because I can t- completely relate to your, what you said about like going week to week thinking like, does everybody else know something? I don't know. Because yeah. I remember getting to the end of my master's, which is four freaking semesters. That's it. That's it. And, and so fast feeling like, well, dang it. Now I know what I should have done, you Mm -hmm. know, even just in terms of like paperwork deadlines and things like that, that I do think really no one's (laughs) told you about because they just assume, you know, and it's not like they're trying to be malicious or anything, but it just happens. Like they think, you know, and you don't know, and then you don't do something and they're like, well, how could you not know that? And you're like, what? Anyway, yeah, (laughs) it's just so short. You don't have a lot of time to figure it out. Yes. Anyway. Um, and, and you don't necessarily in that short time have a lot of the relationships in place that, you know, if people that are, have done it before you mm-hmm. that will tell you, Hey, heads up, you need to know about this. Cause masters is two years. So yeah. you meet somebody and then a year later they're gone Yeah, or they're the same year as you and, yeah. and it's, they're going all doing it together. You. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway. That's so, a, yeah. Well, I'm really mm-hmm. glad that you asked that question because I personally, I think it was both, uh, pretty equally in my case. Um, at at the start, I really think that it was much more external, right? So I, what that means in my mind is I was observing my colleagues. A lot of them had done these insane degrees, right? People from Juilliard, people from CCM, people from Oberlin, people from all Manhattan, right? all these nuts, huge schools. And I'm looking at them and I'm like, oh my gosh. And I watch them play and they're perfect and they're beautiful. And I immediately make a judgment call. I say, I went to Goshen college. What a joke, right? Nobody has heard of Goshen college. I grew up in Oregon, which is not really known as like a music center of the world. So that was my first set of thoughts was, holy poop, right? These people are way just on paper. Well, and, then, and also just so to be clear for audience, you yes. were in a studio that was comprised of undergraduates, master's degrees, and probably a lot of doctoral students. Yes. So yeah. also knowing that you're comparing yourself as a master's student sometimes to people yes. who are doing their doctorate. Is, yes. But you, even though you know that intellectually, you still do the comparison. Oh, it's so bad. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, undergrads were playing better at me than yeah. that point. So again, that's a whole another mind trick. Right. But, um, yeah. So on paper, right, it, it just by looking at people's credentials, 
that was my first right big hit for mm-hmm. my Got personal it. and mental health because I immediately made that judgment call and we all do it. Right. I mean, we all judge it's, other it's people. It's one thing to make that observation because it's a fact, right? Yes. People went there and you didn't or, right. but then it, a lot of times we take that fact and, mm-hmm. and personalize it Yeah, or make an evaluation about ourselves based on that. Right. So the way I could have flipped that was I could have said, Oh wow, that's really impressive. You know, cool. That those other people did great things. But the way looking back that I could have maybe saved myself a little bit would have been if I had said, wow, I went from this, like nobody undergrad and here I am. Mm -hmm. Right. And now looking back, like I wish I had someone tell me that instead, not that anybody anybody at all looked down on my undergrad experience. Nobody said a single word to me that was all in my head. Right. right? But if I had said instead, wow, this is really incredible that I'm around these other people. And I came from like this really random place, but here we all are. I must be just as good. Yeah. Or at least like it's, I'm really proud that I am of at least a caliber of consideration to be in this studio. It's a huge deal, but in the moment. So That's did you feel like not how I felt <laughs> in the, so like you said earlier, you were so proud that you earned your spot in yeah. this studio. Did you feel like in your masters, you were having to prove to yourself week after week that you still deserve that spot? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Because I was around such incredible and intelligent musicians who really not personally made me feel this way, but just again, because of their credentials and because of the way that they could play and at the rate that these people could learn. Like I mentioned, I, I'm not a slow learner, but I'm a deliberate learner Mm -hmm. and I needed, it's almost like I, I was craving someone telling me, by this time next week, do this, or by this time in a month, do this. And I didn't have that. So I didn't know at what rate things should be done or memorized or anything. That kind of goes back to our timing discussion. Do you feel like if they had said that you could have achieved it or not? I because don't know. The answer I don't know to about that. that for myself. Either. Yeah, yeah. I don't know the answer to that. I and wish so I maybe could say there yes. was a part of it in your mind that was saying, I don't know if I can do this. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm, I'm totally projecting yeah. on you because that was no, me that's, too. I really, I really don't know the answer to that question yeah. because the other element to this is I knew that I needed some technical help, right? Mm-hmm. I did not come out of my undergrad feeling a hundred percent tech, uh, excuse me, confident in my technique. Um, so th- I had very specific skills that I needed to be helped with. Do you, what, and, what were some of those? Um, general efficiency of playing, okay. um, mainly you mean physically efficiency or mental efficiency? Um, both mostly okay. physical. So like okay. I wanted to be able to play longer, more endurance pieces mm-hmm. without, mm-hmm. I never experienced physical pain, but I just wanted to be able to do larger scale programs mm-hmm. with much more uh, mental focus, um, with, so like, so just both, but yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to build endurance and I didn't know how to do that on my own in the practice room okay. without like planning a huge recital and just building up my endurance. Um, and then I occasionally had been told about like my neck and shoulder tension and mm-hmm. how I needed to just use my arm weight. My undergrad, um, teacher was great at working through that with me. Cause I had had some technique in high school a little bit, right. but really like the most basic levels of technique, I really, there were some things I was missing. Mm-hmm. So that was another element in my grad program where in the particular studio that I was in, it wasn't a highly technical setting. Mm-hmm. We were more, we were more focused on 
getting product, getting performance level, artistry, artistry. Okay. Correct. Mm -hmm. And that taught me a lot, which is usually, I think the expectation for grad school versus undergrad. And I don't know about the time that you were there about the composition of the studio. Did he have a lot of undergrads? I don't think he did. He had one. Yeah. Okay. So his focus really was, uh, you know, was that artistry. Yeah. And And that, that's, that was very good for many people. And I think for me, I was, that was part of that, like drowning and swimming element of what am I missing or how am I, what's going on here? Because I was craving a little bit more technique help, but I also needed to be like preparing a recital program. So that was another weird, like in between right. moment. You for just me. don't have time in a master's. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, it's so short and I felt that too. So, um, yeah, I guess so to answer your question, like as that, as that pressure built, it really, um, I personally think it really came first from that extent, you know, external judgment and that external, like, wow, look at the environment around me. And then it came inward. Yes. And then it came to me and said, Oh, like, but look at you, you know, like, look at, why are you here? And Mm. it got, it got bad. Thanks for tuning in to this portion of the interview with Emily Trapp Jenkins. Stay tuned for parts two and three. If you found this podcast to be helpful, please let us and others know. And don't forget to subscribe so you stay up to date with our latest episodes. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mindfulmusicped, on Twitter at mindfulmusicped, or you can contact us at mindfulmusicpedagogy.com where you can also find other helpful resources.